Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Native protesters are confronting a new reality in which they risk getting injured or killed while speaking out for social justice. A man is in stable condition after getting shot at a rally opposing efforts to reinstall a statue many Native residents consider offensive. It's at least the second time a gunman has opened fire during protests over controversial monuments. Today we'll find out how protesters are adapting to a new level of potential violence. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In the ongoing election turmoil in Guatemala, thousands of indigenous groups came out to protest and block highways. This was in response to actions over the weekend by the country's Justice Department to confiscate dozens of containers of voting material. Protesters say it's an effort to use the judicial system to block a president-elect seeking reform from taking office. Maria Martin reports. They held up traffic in at least eight important crossroads in Guatemala. Thousands of indigenous protesters blocked highways to defend democracy and fight against what reformist president-elect Bernardo Arevalo calls a, quote, coup in process. Los corruptos ya el país les ha dicho at another protest in Guatemala City, indigenous leader Rosa Castro said Maya and all Guatemalans are tired of the corrupt rule by inept rulers who rob people of decent health and education, making millions in private profit during the pandemic, and her now trying to pass legislation that would harm Maya communities, including an amnesty for war crimes committed during Guatemala's 36 years of civil conflict. The protest are calling for the resignation of the attorney general and others involved in what one electoral magistrate called nothing short of an assault on democracy. The influential Maya group, 48 Cantones, 48 Villages, says they are prepared to blockade indefinitely. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The federal government is taking new steps to preserve the oral history of Native American boarding schools that were run by governments and churches. The Mountain West News Bureau's Kayla Bradle has more. For more than 150 years, hundreds of thousands of Native American children were forced to attend boarding schools created to strip them of their culture. Their hair was cut off, traditional clothes were burned, and many were beaten. Now, the government is giving nearly $4 million to a coalition focused on boarding school healing. The group will create a collection of survivor stories, testimonies that tribal governments, policymakers, and the public can access. The group also wants Congress to establish a commission to investigate and document the past injustices of boarding school policies. Congresswoman Sharice Davids of Kansas is a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation. She spoke about that proposal in a recent webinar. We are in a time where we can make sure that this legacy, this history, this uh, the full truth of these policies is not just acknowledged, but that we do something to start to address that chapter of our legacy. So far, the commission bill has not passed either chamber in Congress. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. 
Three Democratic U.S. lawmakers have introduced legislation to officially recognize the second Monday of October as Indigenous Peoples Day on the federal level. U.S. New Mexico Senators Martin Heinrich and Ben Ray Lujan and California Congresswoman Norma Torres introduced the bill. The bill would also replace any mention of Columbus Day and all federal laws or regulations with Indigenous Peoples Day. According to the lawmakers, more than a dozen states across the country have already made the change, including New Mexico. The lawmakers say recognizing Indigenous Peoples Day as a federal holiday is a step to address generations of trauma and inequity. Tribal leaders and executive officers of Native organizations are among those supporting the bill. In the Senate, the bill is co-sponsored by 11 Democratic senators who often advocate for Native issues, including members of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal-winning radio show and podcast. A 23-year-old man is charged with attempted first-degree murder after shooting a Native man attending a rally in Española, New Mexico. The victim was among attendees speaking out against the reinstallation of a statue depicting Juan de Oñate. Among other violent acts, the 16th-century Spanish conquistador massacred and oppressed nearby Pueblo residents. This shooting is the latest violent incident during otherwise peaceful protests. Coming up this hour, we'll talk with organizers about what led up to the shooting and what it means for future protests at urban centers, controversial developments, and sacred sites. Who should be responsible for maintaining a safe space during a protest? What risk assessments and preparations should happen before a protest? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. And if you've spent time on the front line of a protest, how did you make sure you and those around you were safe? Let us know at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us now is Raymond Naranjo. He is a chef, business owner, and local community member. He's in Santa Clara, Pueblo, where he is a tribal member. He's also Ottawa. Welcome to our show, Ray. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Marley is a member of the Red Nation and a citizen of San Alfonso Pueblo. She's speaking with us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome back to NAC. Thanks for having me again, Sean. You bet. And in Seattle, Washington, we have Kate Bitts. She's a program manager, trainer, and organizer with the Western States Center. Hello, Kate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean. I think by now... Most of us have seen these images from last week's shooting in New Mexico. Absolutely surreal 
gunman, deadpan stare, aiming a high-caliber handgun into a group of protesters. Ray, you were an eyewitness. You captured it all on video. Can you briefly walk us through what was happening just before the shooting? So after seeing the guys uh, walk off in a group, um, you know, um, uh, we were walking in towards the center, and uh, that's when we heard the announcement uh, to gather the children towards the center. Um, uh, uh, my partner was going towards the children. Um, that's when I uh, heard the conflict and uh, ran over to see what was going on. Um, as you can see in the video, uh, that's when uh, Ryan made a break for the altar as I was approaching and uh, the altercation started. And what do you think he, what was the motive there to try and damage the altar? Or do you think, I've, I've read speculation that maybe he was going to use, there, there was an idea that maybe the shooter or the alleged shooter would use that as a, a vantage point to shoot more people. What, what's your thought? Why the, why the rush like that? You know, um, that part, I was uh, focused on documenting um, the uh, people that were uh, at the perimeter so at that time, I actually didn't know what was going on as far as that part. Okay. And just the turmoil. I mean, was the was the shooting as horrific as, as the images we've all seen on the Internet? Oh, yes, definitely. It was uh, very much a, a traumatic experience. And how did you process? I mean, imagine it happened so quickly. But what went through your mind as soon as you heard that shot and you saw uh, somebody go down? What what would you think? Uh, you know, my uh, my warrior came out. You know, I uh, ducked down, uh, gathered my thoughts, and um, actually uh, prepared myself to um, go at the uh, shooter. And um, that's when I noticed him running. And uh, so I uh, joined the chase and uh, continued my mission to document this tragic moment. And how far did you chase the shooter, Ray? Um, I ran around. Um, we... Uh, seeing him turn um and i made sure to to try to get the license plate um of the vehicle because at that time um you know i didn't i mean that's just what was going through my mind at the time uh-huh now you've been to other protests before have you ever been to a protest that that turned violent like this uh no i have seen people um where they um handcuff themselves across the road and things like that. But no, uh, no, not, not like this. So going forward, Ray, how do you feel? Are we, do you feel safe going to other protests or are you going to maybe stop going to protests or you going to maybe change your behavior at all? What, what are you thinking? Um, you know, um, when something is important and something, and it's something that you believe in, you know, we all have to, uh, make stands and, um, that's what uh, this freedom is, is, should be for everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So any thought, I mean, do you think there's any way that this could have been avoided or, or prevented, or is this just something that just was beyond anybody's control at the moment? You know, when you sign up and you join these things, um, you have to prepare yourself for for uh, anything, um, you know, as I grew up, I grew up hearing stories of the AIM, AIM movement. Uh, my uh, mother was an active member of the Albuquerque group uh, during her time at UNM. Uh, knowing this, I was well aware of the dangers and consequences and the importance of carrying medicine 
and having a clear mind. Um, as Native people, we're definitely vulnerable as our population is less than 3% of the general population. Yeah, I'm just, I'm glad that, uh, obviously it's it's horrible that, that one person did get shot, but I'm glad, Ray, that you're safe and the others are safe. And uh, geez, it's just, just such a, a tough topic. And uh, I encourage anybody, though, that has experience with protests or has any thoughts about safety at protests, please give us a call at 1-800-99-NATIVE. And Jennifer, I, I want to ask you now, did you have any idea going into the last week's protest that it would turn violent and bloody like it did? I mean, the possibility is always there, right? Especially when it comes to the issue of racist monuments. In 2020, we saw that somebody was willing to kill to protect these statues. Um, uh, you know, the shooter, Stephen Baca, um, in that case, you know, shot one of our comrades nine times. Um, thankfully, he did live. And Stephen Baca is going to be getting away with just a slap on the wrist. And, you know, that news came just before um, the shooting was attempted and so, or the shooting happened. And so I I have to wonder if that was a part of, you know, what inspired the shooter. Um, I also, yeah, you have to be prepared um, and, you know, to some extent expect this because, um, you know, just the existence of Native people is threatening to those who want to uphold these bloody legacies. But I do also want to say it doesn't matter if you avoid protests or not. Anti-Indian violence is so widespread and pervasive. Like, you know, they attack people in their homes sometimes. They attack people who aren't who don't have anything to do with the political scene. During the Entrada protest in 2017, somebody who wasn't associated with us or the protest at all and had no mm -hmm. idea what was happening was arrested, right? So Okay. Well, Jennifer... Um, Going back to, to last week's shooting, uh, where was law enforcement and uh, how satisfied were you with the, the response of law enforcement there in Española? I mean, by and large, we're, we weren't satisfied. There was um, a few uh, security um, around the building at the time of the shooting. They did not do anything. Like, I, I don't remember seeing them, um, like, attempting to offer aid or care or assistance at all in those first moments. It was people from our crowd who essentially saved the shooting victim's life. Um, somebody actually had a chest pack in their car and applied that. And the first officer on the scene tried to discourage the folks providing medical aid to try to make them stop providing medical aid, but he himself did not have any medical expertise, did not identify himself as a medic. And so they refused to stop, and uh, it was about almost 15 minutes before medics actually came. And uh, why do you we think just, why do you think he was trying to prevent them from administering first aid? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe I uh, I can't answer that. But people were really dissatisfied with the fact that the sheriff's office was just feet away. Somebody actually physically ran over to tell them to respond. From what I understand. And before the protest, was there any effort to to notify law enforcement or, you know, hey, this could be a little hot here. We've already had a shooting at a similar type of protest uh, in Albuquerque. Were they given a heads up at all, law enforcement, going into this? Yes. Yes. So um, 
the mother of the shooting victim from the 2020 Onyata protest in Albuquerque called such a wide range of police departments and public officials to warn them about the high possibility of violence. Um, so yeah, that, that definitely happened. Okay. Uh, Jennifer, another concern is I know there were children present and in the video, you can even hear somebody telling the children to move to the center. How are those young people holding up? I'm worried about them. Um, yeah, we're trying to be in touch with them too, make sure that they are getting adequate resources, um, make sure that they're getting funding for, you know, everything they're going to need to have their needs met in, in this after time. So, um, I don't know the children personally, but I do know that all of our best collective efforts are going towards meeting their needs right now. We are talking about a shooting that occurred last week in Española, New Mexico. This is a, a small northern New Mexico town, about 30 minutes north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it has a large presence of, of tribal communities there, Santa Clara Pueblo, Oqueahuengue, San Alfonso Pueblo, uh, other northern pueblos as well. And uh, we're talking to eyewitnesses, and uh, we've got other guests as well who are going to chime in and uh, help us uh, sort through this issue, what happened, and uh, talking about specifically danger and uh, personal safety at protests. It seems like they are getting more violent and uh, bloodier as the years go by. Give us a call if uh, you've ever been to a protest that uh, went sideways and people got hurt. Tell us what you learned uh, what can be done to make protests and protesters safety throughout Native America. Our phone number, Albuquerque Studio, is 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848. Cannabis is a potential source for revenue, especially for tribes and states where recreational sales remain prohibited. And getting there is not always a sure thing. We'll get an update from tribes working to establish new marijuana businesses, sometimes against significant resistance from state and federal officials. That's on the next Native America Calling. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. If you've ever been to a protest, do you worry about your safety? If you're a protest group organizer or member, what new safety measures do you take? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. And we have Jennifer Marley on the line right now. She's a member of Red Nation. And Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about the types of precautions that, that you and Red Nation took before the incident to, to hopefully make sure or, or to attempt to make the, the protest a peaceful one? Um, well, in all honesty, that day, the tone was totally different because we were actually, um, you know, feeling more celebratory about the fact that the statue was no longer going to be erected. Um, there was opposition there since the early morning. So all of the organizations involved, and I want to be clear that this was like a broad coal coalition and it wasn't just 
Red Nation leading, um, they did a really good job to create a barrier around the opposition there, right? The men that were accompanying the shooter and the shooter himself um, to make sure that they weren't disrupting our peaceful rally. And that was really good. They were very attentive and they were making sure that these people weren't getting a chance to harass the crowd. And, um, you know, although somebody was shot, I do believe that, um, you know, the people who responded, including the shooting victim, did succeed in preventing the shooter from continuing to shoot and from potentially, you know, hopping on the podium and getting that vantage point, which I do believe he was trying to do um, from the angle that he was rushing in. Yeah, heroes for sure. And Jennifer, to your knowledge, were any of your people armed? No, not to my knowledge. Um, I know for sure in Red Nation, we absolutely forbid people from showing up armed to these things. Okay. And going forward, will you continue that policy? Um, I, I can't say for sure, but as of right now, we know that firearms seldom, um, you know, it's, it's, we're not interested in giving the opposition nor the police or the media a reason to um, criminalize us or frame us as insiders of violence. Sure, sure. Jennifer, what do you think is driving this violence i mean you hear people talk about oh it's social media and everybody's just getting radicalized through social media and then other people will say it's a mental health issue other people say you know it's a it's a gun control issue you've mentioned racism what what do you think's ultimately driving it all um yeah it's settler colonialism it's racist violence um you know we just uh got to see some tweets that the shooter had formally posted. There was actually an FBI investigation opened on him. And we we know that he has expressed violent tendencies in the past. He announced himself to be a follower of QAnon, which we know is something that is radicalizing people. And yes, social media can be a vehicle for radicalizing people, um, but it's not the only means by which they are, I think. We see a lot of mainstream narratives reinforcing settler colonial violence, reinforcing racist violence. Like, uh, you know, just the day before the shooting, we saw Trump trying out an infamous Glock that was used to massacre black folks. Like, so when we see these like dog whistles happening in the public eye, it's giving people permission and confidence to move forward with violent acts, I think. And um, unfortunately, it's not, I I wouldn't even say it's fringe, you know, like the, the right wing extremist ideology we're seeing is becoming status quo. Um, and I think in many ways has been, especially for Native people. I think um, even people who position themselves as progressive um, will uphold anti-Indianism too. Mm-hmm. Do you want to remind our listeners uh, this shooter has not been convicted of anything? We should refer to him as an alleged uh, shooter at this point. So just want to make sure we have that clear. And Jennifer, I know that there are concerns uh, amongst you and uh, your fellow Red Nation members. Uh, you folks don't feel safe now. You're worried you could potentially be targets. What's the risk? What do you what do you what are you most fearful of? Um, well, the alleged shooter openly threatened to dox us and was making it clear that he was taking note of our names and tribes. He'd yell them back to us as we announced them when we went up to speak. Um, we have been doxxed before. Some of our folks have been threatened with fascist violence, you know, from like the New Mexico Civil Guard who had doxxed some of our folks, threatened to come to our house. Like, 
we've had people um, have to move before. It's and this isn't um, you know unique to us. This is something that activists experience all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why there are organizations that are set up to assist people in um, improving their security. Okay. Jennifer, you, you used the term docs a moment ago. Can you explain that to our listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah, it, it's, I believe it's a term that does come from, you know, the so-called alt-right, uh, but it basically means to uh, totally expose somebody, right, put their phone number, their address, their place of work, their family members online so that folks can take it upon themselves to harass them, to show up to their house, to attempt more violence against them. Okay. And Jennifer, what are you folks doing now? Um, I mean, do you think that uh, the alleged shooter could be working with other people that aren't currently in custody? And how are you taking precaution and safeguarding yourselves and your families? Um, yeah, I, I do believe that he probably had accomplices. Um, for the moment, we're laying low. Um, you asked the question, like, will that prevent us from attending protests? And um, in the future, no. But for the time being, yeah, we're probably not going to be making a lot of public appearances. Um, we're going to work on securing all of our personal information and, um, yeah, really kind of uh, trying to not be in the public eye as much. Mm-hmm. What about your relationship with law enforcement? Uh, do you feel there's a way to, to engage with law enforcement and make them more responsive, make them more aware of, of these kind of situations and, and to, to help and, and support and, and provide some level of protection? Um, that's not something I or my organization is interested in doing. Why not? Um, well, in every single instance like this, going back to, uh, you know, the Entraba, the racist seal stuff, the other Oñate statues, um, police have joined in on the brutalizing of Native people in every single one of those instances at worst and done absolutely nothing to protect us at best. So, you know, even uh, political and systemic analysis aside, which I think is very important, um, just from these experiences alone, we've seen where they stand. Okay. So where does that leave you then? If you can't trust law enforcement, you can't trust the police, um, what can you do going forward to ensure the safety of you and others at, at protests? Um, it's going to take some very concise and strong organizing amongst ourselves. And there is a whole lot of precedent for people, um, you know, being able to effectively and adequately protect themselves in times like this. I think that we're going to see the landscape of that change. I think we're going to see tactics change in the coming future because the political moment is shifting and it is intensifying. Um, But I I wholeheartedly believe in our ability to defend and protect our communities just the way, you know, um, our AIM brothers and sisters did and just the way, um, you know, folks always have. So um, I'm not terribly concerned about that. Um, I do think there's a whole lot of power in the public and in the community that people overlook. And Jennifer, for someone who's listening to the show right now, maybe a young person who's, who's never been to a protest, but they're, they're, they're inspired and, and they, they want to get involved and they want to support some of these issues, but now they're thinking, geez, you know, I, I want to support Native causes, but I don't want to get shot doing it. What do you tell that person? 
Well, first of all, there's so many ways to get involved. Protests are just one small part of it. And I think people think that's um, the bulk of it because that's what gets sensationalized in the news so much. That's what you see and hear the most about. That's where the optics are really focused. But um, there's so many ways to be involved. You know, a lot of this is also desk work, um, communication. These past few days we've been, you know, working really hard with media production. Um, so there's so many ways people can get involved that don't involve direct actions. Um, but I also want to say, um, you know, if you are, don't act alone, don't go alone, like be working with a group. There's power in numbers. And that's why it's so important that um, we are communicating well and that we are organized in a strong way to have a unified front and presence. Um, when people go to protests and they're not communicating with the organizers and take it upon themselves to engage in like rogue actions and things of that nature, that's when it can be really dangerous and endanger crowds. So um, organization and communication are key to safety at protests. All right. And Raymond, back to you. What do you think could be done to ensure the safety of protesters at events like this? You know, like I said earlier, you know, uh, the importance of carrying medicine, having a clear mind, and going knowing that um, you could be a victim and it could be you. Mm -hmm. Any thought uh, about going to a protest armed? Uh, No, that's not part of it. That's not part of who we are as Native people. Um, You know, and we're praying and we're doing something that that we believe in. You know, we have to come with, with just our prayer as as our weapon. Okay. And Raymond, do you feel the same way as Jennifer in that law enforcement can't be trusted and can't be depended on? Um, you know, I have to, you know, the evidence speaks loud for itself. And that's, um, but the, the reality is, is that we still have to live in this community. So we need to figure out um, how to uh, reconcile this situation. Okay. And what do you think is, is driving these this violence that we're going through in, in this country right now we hear about shootings everywhere almost weekly um in, in communities all across the country um you know the um uprise of of old ideas um and downplaying the idea that everyone is equal everyone deserves equal rights under this country mm-hmm well, Raymond and, and Jennifer, both uh, thoughts and prayers to you folks and everybody else uh, that's been impacted by this, this tragedy, uh, especially the young people, the children that we talked about earlier. And at this point, I, I want to bring Kate into our conversation now. She is the program manager, trainer, and organizer with the Western State Center. And Kate, uh, please, can you provide some more context uh, with regard to what kind of precautions, safety precautions specifically, should should people think about before having a protest or staging a rally? Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you for uh, bringing me in. And of course, Raymond and Jennifer, my thoughts really go out to you and your communities. This is such a horrible event. Uh, it's something that never should have happened. Um, and first off, I would just like to say that protest organizers can essentially do everything right, be very responsible, very thoughtful about creating a good safety plan, and things can still go very wrong, right? That's a reality of the conditions we're organizing under. 
We're dealing with rising political violence, rising bigotry and racist violence. And these are a real challenge to our right to protest. Um, all of that has to play into our risk assessments as we're planning our events. Um, you know, we just heard about outreach in advance to several law enforcement agencies, to local elected officials, um, outreach in the moment to uh, try and get state agencies to do the right thing, right? And, and yet this violence did occur. Um, so, I mean, this sounds to me like a dangerous, dangerously limited response um, from law enforcement and from local government. Um, so first off, I would just like to say that in today's context, when political violence is such a significant risk, uh, elected officials have no excuse for failing to speak out and to take action to protect the exercise of our fundamental civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, um, as, okay, as okay, real quickly. So I just want to ask, so law enforcement, I, I mean, what's, what is their responsibility to protect the public in a situation like this? Because I know I have been in situations with police before and when they're requested to, hey, you know, something might happen. We're worried there could be uh, some some kind of altercation. I've had them say, hey, look, we're not bodyguards. That's not our job. We're not bodyguards. You want you want security like that? You go hire a private security detail. C can they say that? Is that legal for them? Um, yes. <laughs> okay. It is. Um, and uh, when I'm working with organizers who in many, many different contexts, whether that is indigenous folks organizing for justice, uh, whether it's LGBTQIA2S plus people um, trying to hold a pride event in a small town these days, right? Uh, how I suggest that they frame those conversations with government agencies is to ask, what can we do to ensure that everyone can arrive safely safely express their First Amendment rights and then leave safely. Because ensuring public safety um, and ensuring that both we and our bigoted opposition are able to um, express our opinions and uh, have our right to free assembly, that is the duty of law enforcement, right? Um, as, as far as um, this conversation about Security, I think it's very, very important for organizers in these conditions to um, make sure that we are bringing folks who are trained and tasked with de-escalation on that day, um, just because we need people who can represent our interests and who can focus on situational awareness and on protecting our folks. Um, in that context, I would also say it's super important to have someone who is tasked with being a police liaison. Uh, it should be clear that there is one person who law enforcement should be talking to, uh, whether they're requesting that uh, a protest group should move or change what we're doing somehow, uh, whether they're checking in about a potential threat. Um, someone should be the point of contact for that. Law enforcement should not be uh, in a position where they're approaching just anyone to uh, to issue orders or give suggestions, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, you mentioned uh, de-escalation, and we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I, I want you to, to provide a little bit more context and, and really explain for our listeners, what does that look like, de-escalation, and how can that actually occur in, in a situation like this where, where emotions and, and tempers are really high and, and there's a, a huge risk 
for perhaps violence or uh, or some kind of breakdown. So we are going to take a, a short break and we're going to come back. And I also do want to let folks know that we did here at Native America Calling, our producers reached out to the Rio Ariba County Sheriff's Office to join our show today. And we didn't hear from them in time before we went to air. So uh, encourage people, though, if you have any kind of comments or questions or you have any experience uh, with protests and, and what can be done to make protests and protesters more safe, uh, to alleviate some of these dangers that could possibly arise, give us a call. We'd sure love your input. We'd sure like to hear what you have to say. Our number here at the studio is 1-800-996-2848. And our phone lines are open right now. So anybody who's uh, been involved in protests over the years, please, please share your wisdom, share your expertise here on Native America Calling. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about safety during protests and rallies. Are you an elder protester, maybe an AIM member or an old school activist? How has the environment around protests changed over time? That's another question. Is it more dangerous? Is it less dangerous? Tell us at 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. We have Kate Bitts on the line. She's up in Seattle, Washington. She is an organizer, community organizer. And Kate, uh, de-escalation, you're in a situation, maybe a protest, maybe a, a public event of some sort where people are speaking and maybe there's some tensions that are running high. How does de-escalation actually work? How can you lower the volume enough to keep people safe? So I should first say that this is a pretty specific set of skills, and there are many organizations that train around it um, around the country. Um, Western State Center is not one of them, but we often uh, refer people to our partners at Bridging Divides Initiative, uh, who have a really comprehensive list of organizations that provide this kind of training around the country. Um, And... (laughs) In terms of uh, what I've experienced through my own de-escalation training, uh, I I am sometimes one of those folks with a vest on at protests. Um, I will say it's very important to um, know when you are ready to show up for your community in that way. For example, I would never do peacekeeping or de-escalation at a pride event because I'm a queer woman. (laughs) Um, And if uh, the people yelling and screaming are specifically yelling and screaming some transphobic and homophobic things. I know that I don't necessarily have the capacity that day to de-escalate myself, let alone other folks. (laughs) Um, That said, um, I think this is a great role for people to consider who, um, who are in a position of being an ally at one of these protests. Uh, I've seen elder folks do amazing de-escalation work. Uh, it really is all about 
um, figuring out how to redirect some of that aggressive energy um, and also just make sure that our people within a protest um, are, uh, are doing what they need to do to keep themselves safe. So as an organizer, I always like to make sure that a safety plan is clear for my attendees ahead of time. Right. If they're going to people to be people doing that de-escalation work, attendees should know um, how they're going to be marked as de-escalators. Uh, attendees should be requested to follow direction that they're getting from protest organizers, with, which Jennifer also mentioned earlier. Uh, that's so important to uh, keeping a positive atmosphere and a safe atmosphere as much as possible. Thanks, Kate. We've got a caller on the line, Dennis, listening in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on station KUNM. Dennis, thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a retired, uh, actually a, a Polish guy that uh, that's retired, and I kind of wandered into town back in 2018. My uh, hobby's photography, and I went to some kind of event that said Entrada, and I didn't know what it was, and I just kind of went down to the plaza. Uh, and there were maybe 50 indigenous people, and then there were like maybe 200 to 250 police all over the adjacent buildings, bristling with antennas and a helicopter flying overhead. Uh, and uh, I, did, I happened to have my photography or my uh, wildlife photography lens with me, so I aimed it at the top of the building, and they all scattered. You know, the cops all scattered. Uh, and then somebody told, "Oh, you're going to get arrested." Um, and my my the impression that I took from this is they are scared to death of indigenous folks. I mean, these mm -hmm. folks are just you know peacefully protesting, but boy, they were sure equipped and they were nervous. When I left the garbage can that I was sitting on, they came in and took the garbage can apart. So I you know I don't know what it was, but I think you folks have a tough road to hoe, especially uh, with the events since 2018. I think it's gotten a lot worse for you, and I. Well, I pray for you, but I'm not sure what the answer is. But I, you're absolutely right. Uh, the police are afraid, and they tend the the oh the uh, uh, the alt right tends to think that the police are on their side. So that's that's all I got to say. Well, Dennis, sure do appreciate you calling in today. And Jennifer, I'd like you to go ahead and respond because the event, uh, the Entrada event that Dennis refers to, I think he's talking about. Uh, the Santa Fe fiestas that occur annually. And what do you know about that event? Because I know there have been some divisive uh, situations around that event and uh, the police presence as well. What's your thought? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate him offering that perspective as someone who just moved here um, recently because I think it's true. I think it's accurate. Um, you know, the Entrada has been being protested since as early as 1980. Um, first by Pueblo leaders in 2015 by people who actually formally portrayed um, De Vargas and the mythical La Arena in the Entrada reenactment, which reenacts the uh, quote-unquote bloodless reconquest of Santa Fe by De Vargas. It wasn't bloodless, of course. That's why it's been protested. Um, then Red Nation got involved with those protests. So I think what he was witnessing was the one where I was arrested at, where they, yeah, they brought out snipers. Um, they had an on-site booking area. That's where the man who had nothing to do with the protest was arrested. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, it was purely reactionary. Um, certainly, 
anti-Indian backlash. And it just the irony that the police to this day on their uniforms wear the steel of the Vargas. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's very clear um, who they're in line with and who, are, who they are protecting and what they are protecting, right? And so um, I really appreciate that analysis. Okay. And um, yeah. Jennifer, just curious, how many times have you been arrested for, for standing up for what you believe in at protests and rallies and other events? Just once. Uh, you <laughs> okay. know, just that one time at the Entrada, of course, um, all charges were dropped because the video evidence showed that they were phonies. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, just curious. Just curious. Jennifer, how important do you think it is to have media present at these types of situations? I mean, having Ray there with the camera, you know, got that that footage. But what about mainstream media? Uh, do you always contact them before a protest or a rally? Yes, we always try to put out a public release and have a press conference if we can. I, I really cannot overstate how much I appreciate Chef Ray's bravery and courage in getting that footage. Um, it, it's playing such a huge role in how all of this is playing out and how all the court proceedings are going to play out. So, you know, the media that the public collect is very important, and uh, as well as the broader media. Um, I appreciate him of all of the news stations who showed up and all of the outlets who are covering this because I think it is one of our biggest tools in um, changing or shifting the narrative um, locally, nationwide, and even globally. Um, I think it is absolutely powerful, and I just cannot overstate its importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate, how about you? Any any tips for for getting media? Because you know it's one thing to contact media; they can't always attend. How do you? What kind of strategies can you use to to make sure or to to have the best chance that that media will actually show up and document what's going on? Yeah, I would echo Jennifer in saying that both making sure that um, citizen journalists are there to document the event the way you want it to be documented. Um, and reaching out to media via tools like a press release and a press call beforehand, if possible. Uh, both of those things are incredibly vital um, because it brings in different perspectives. Um, so when reaching out to mainstream media, <laughs> I always think about what are the ways that, um, that we can best explain in our own words but also in words that uh, the broader community are going to understand and identify with, why are we protesting? What are we there to talk about? What are the goals of this protest? How can people get involved and attend if they want to? What does that safety plan potentially look like? These are all things that can go in a press release. Um, and what I find when organizers, you know, often we're, we're talking about folks who are volunteering, putting on whole events for their communities, um, a press release is not always the first priority, especially when there are safety threats. Mm -hmm. But uh, getting your perspective out there is an important way of ensuring safety and also making sure that the way we show up in mainstream media is not just how are our opponents talking about us, right? Uh, it's a very, very important part of giving voice to what the protest is about, why we're there, what the goals are, what we want it to look like. And also, Kate, in the aftermath, after an event like last week, uh, when the dust finally settles, what do folks need to do 
to protect themselves, you know, because you always hear horror stories about, you know, hey, I was just there and I got arrested or now I'm somehow implicated as being an agitator. What do folks need to do to protect uh, themselves legally as well as physically during and after a protest? Yeah, I think the threat of um, of doxing, as Jennifer mentioned, uh, of opposition folks trying to release your information and often going after people in very covert ways, that's a real concern. Um, I have been in contact with people who even had their credit cards stolen after being doxed, um, which is, I think, a really covert form of aggression. Um, this this is something that folks need to take into account. So uh, I think that is best mitigated by thinking through it beforehand. Um, how do I maybe sign up for a service that helps me scrub my information off the internet? Um, how can I connect with digital security resources? Uh, that is always going to work better in advance versus when the horse is already far out of the barn door and someone has already put your information out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would also say another thing to think about in advance is uh, monitoring the opposition. Um, these folks are on social media. We, we heard, just heard that the alleged shooter has been tweeting for years, uh, making kind of violent statements and threats. Um, these are all things that as much as possible, if, uh, if folks can figure out in advance who is planning to show up, is there an organized paramilitary group that might be showing up? Uh, that gives us important information, and that opposition monitoring should also continue after the fact to make sure that we understand how are people talking about this event, how are people characterizing our group. Uh, in some cases, that can lead to um, us even having a fairly solid defamation case against people who are talking about us online, right? And I think mm -hmm. in general, legal support is also important um, just so that we understand if people have been jailed, uh, how do we get them out? Uh, how do we deal with potential charges? How do we collate that video evidence that might get charges dropped? All of that is really important. Um, I would also say that in the wake of an event like this, um, it is overwhelming. Organizers deserve support. Uh, we deserve time to process what's happened. We deserve that healing time. So what I'll often suggest that folks do is specifically task someone with responding to people who reach out. Um, that can be so overwhelming, even if you're mostly hearing from close movement partners, allies, media who want to hear your perspective, it can just get to be too much. So whether that's setting an away message on your group's email so that there's a pre-written statement in your away message that everyone can quote uh, without having to contact you, whether that's making sure that someone who was not on the front line is the one fielding those messages and figuring out what to do with each one. Um, also vetting any requests from media um, because our bigoted opposition often does try to characterize themselves as news sources, right? The last right. thing you want after an event like this is to be walking into a hostile interview. Right, right. Okay, one more question. Um, it does appear that some of these big protests, there, there are people that go like these professional um, antagonizers, right? They just go and they, they go just just to start stuff, right? And, and they really do uh, make an effort to, to get to to provoke people. And 
how do you protect against that? How do you safeguard? Because when you have somebody who's just there specifically to get a response from somebody uh, that could potentially lead to some kind of a violent exchange, any tips or strategies for just de-escalating that type of dynamic? Yes, um, these provocations are real. Um, it is, I think, one of the most frustrating things for community members to have uh, someone really getting in their face, often with a camera, which is, let's be clear, an intimidation tactic in that context. Um, this is where my old bartender skills usually kick in. <laughs> Because that's a situation where you're trapped behind a bar, you can't go anywhere, and if someone's yelling at you, what you have to do is be as boring as possible, which also helps with those situations where you're being put up on camera. So uh, what I suggest that people do is uh, keep, your, keep your voice as low and as calm as possible and just repeat yourself. So if someone's got a camera in my face, then I'm saying no, thank you, I'm not going to talk to you right now, no, thanks, uh, we're not going to do an interview, no, thank you, can you take a step back, until that person just gets really bored of me, because they're not getting anything that they want out of that interaction. Okay, well, really appreciate you joining us, along with our other guests today, Jennifer Marley and Raymond Naranjo, a discussion about personal safety at protests. And uh, we certainly, again, offer condolences and prayers to, uh, to the person that was wounded at that event last week in Española, New Mexico, and thoughts and prayers going forward to all of our Native brothers and sisters who uh, take up the line in a protest. With that, folks, you have been listening to the one, the only, Native America Calling. Hope you'll tune in again tomorrow an update on tribal cannabis operations. Until then, stay safe, stay sovereign. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by the Indian Nation Conservation Alliance's three-day conference in Las Vegas starting October 24th. Ranchers, farmers, and conservationists will discuss achieving a sustainable future. Info at inca-tcd.org. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the 9th Annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.